Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, Licensed Professional Counselor. I'm very excited today to dig into the physiology of trauma. While Dr. Robert Roten and I talked a lot about many different topics regarding trauma, the human mind, the nervous system, the body, and the implications for our society and therapy, we definitely emphasized a lot about the physiology of trauma and thus the title of this episode. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Dr. Robert Roten is a PsyD and an LPC, and he is the CEO of the Arizona Trauma Institute and the president of the Trauma Institute International. He possesses a rich history of experience in the mental health field. Dr. Roten has supervised multiple clinical outpatient clinics, juvenile justice programs, and intensive outpatient substance abuse programs for adolescents, day treatment programs for children and youth, adult offender programs, and child and family therapeutic services. Additionally, Dr. Roten has advanced training in child and adolescent trauma treatment, family therapy, and family trauma. Dr. Roten served as the president of the Arizona Trauma Therapy Network from 2010 through 2012. Dr. Roten was a professor at Ottawa University in the Behavioral Sciences and Counseling Department, whose primary interests were training counselors to work with traumagenic family dynamics, child and family trauma, and non-egoic models of treatment. Dr. Roten is a diplomat of the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress and collaborates and consults with numerous Arizona agencies fine-tuning their understanding of trauma and the impact of developmental trauma on the individual and family. Dr. Roten also serves on the Arizona Department of Health Services Trauma-Informed Care, TIC, task force as a community member. All right, now here's the interview. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about trauma and implications of trauma on the population. We're also going to talk about clinical interventions. We're going to talk about complex trauma and um, different models for treatment and many other topics in between. And I have to say thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Now, little known fact, uh, you were one of my first trauma teachers in 2009 in Phoenix. at a rundown facility that I was working at, um, and you braved the way in there. We did have mold. Uh, you braved your way, came in there, and taught us about trauma, and it was very eye-opening because we had heard a little bit about it, a, a couple of uh, the trainings in the county, but not much about the science behind it, and then also how could we apply that to our clients. And so it really helped me a lot. And then that led to me getting EMDR certified and all of that and kind of meeting some other experts on it. So I appreciate uh, your investment in our learning. So, Well, you're welcome. Um, it's what I've been doing for a long time. So, And we are here at the Arizona Trauma Institute in Mesa, Arizona, mm-hmm. and that I believe you founded. Mm-hmm. Yes. So just for our people that are new to the topic, could you give us a little bit of a definition or your definition of what trauma is? So the the definition I use for trauma is very different than the one you will find in a DSM or that is popularized on, you know, media. Uh, Almost always when people talk about trauma, they're talking about a single event that was overwhelmingly horrible and terrible. And 
the problem with it being an event is that um, if you're going to say it's an event, it should be more it should be universally problematic. The difficulty we run into, though, is we have people that have all sorts of really awful things happen to them and don't have any symptoms whatsoever. So how do you account for those people? And so you're in much better territory if you look at it as trauma is really when the body's ability to adapt um, is overwhelmed. And that's a physiological process. It's not an emotional process. It's a physiological process. And when you look at it that way, what you're looking at is the symptoms that, that we see in trauma are not only related to an event of some kind, but they're also related to uh, toxic stress and repetitive adversity. So when you have any environment where that's going on, you're going to generate trauma symptoms. But a lot of times people don't think they've been traumatized because of the popular thought process is, well, I didn't have anything big, bad and ugly happen to me. So how can I be traumatized? Well, but you are in an environment that's constantly keeping your physiology in a state of arousal. You're actually having trauma. So trauma emerges when the autonomic nervous system is pushed out of balance and kept out of balance. There's actually a medical terminology that is, a, that is better for um, the term trauma than what we use as trauma kind of gets batted around, and that's dysautonomia. Dysautonomia is anytime symptoms emerge because the, the balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic system is thrown out of balance and the sympathetic system has become dominant. And that's really what you're dealing with with trauma is dys dysautonomia. And so just for all the listeners, the sympathetic nervous system is the part of the nervous system, the reaction that is responsible for more of a flight, fight, flight, freeze, um, excitable response or the responsive side of things? Let me put it, let me give you a different imagery for it. Okay. So imagine a ladder against the side of a house. And at the top of the ladder, that's your executive functioning. That's your ability to think clearly, plan, problem solve, follow through. This is where you can be self-reflective. This is where you have empathy. And all the things that we really value in, in human life, that's at the top. The middle of the ladder is the angry, aggressive, controlling responses that are really what we consider as fight or flight. And those are, that's the middle part of this of this continuum and that is to to really kind of to do something in the inner in the environment to kind of take control or to overcome actively and then you have the bottom of the ladder which is driven by a totally different system called the dorsal vagal system and the dorsal vagal system is really designed that when we are in overwhelm we shut down we disconnect we dissociate we you know um, even even our body will begin to shut down and not work well. Uh, and, and when we look at this in mammals, we call it the feigned death experience, where an animal is so overwhelmed by, by the fear of what's going on around them that their body actually shuts down. And so that's really what we're, we're experiencing. So if you imagine on this ladder, where are people at? If you want them to be able to be successful and to be good students and to be able to learn and be able to plan and have an intentional, deliberate life, the only place that's possible is at the top of the ladder. 
The moment you move out of the top of the ladder into the middle or the lower part of the ladder, you are now reactive, you're irrational, you're, re you're reactive. And so that's, rather than thinking of it as just that binary that it's, you know, fight or flight or freeze, it's really much more complex than that. Is that Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's good because I think what the great thing about having you as a guest is we're going to actually dive into some of the physiology and biology uh, related to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and just for the simple definition, the parasympathetic nervous system, I've heard of people calling it the rest and digest features. Sure. It, I mean, this is a simplistic thing. Sure. So, and then one of the things you've been talking about is the difference between a single event, which people have called trauma, and we kind of got the term post-traumatic stress disorder from, like the trauma is over, the post-trauma, uh, and this sort of toxic stress um, environment where you're most more frequently in a difficult situation that is causing a lot of stress. And so I, I wanted to delve a little bit into that and um, the, the implications for, I guess, not only people that are working with people like therapists, but mm -hmm. also doctors, other medical professionals, sure. before we dive into the sociological. So if you think about it, if someone's living in or was raised in an environment that is what we would consider regular, you know, kind of optimal, it doesn't have to be perfect, but an optimal environment. It's well regulated. Uh, it, you know, it's not reactive. It's you know good good attachments. Um, it's well modulated emotionally. If if people are being raised in that environment and they're currently living in that environment, um, and something awful happens to them, generally they will navigate that without need for therapy at all. You only have a very small number of those folks that actually ever need any kind of therapy because the social system around them is enough to kind of prop them up and help them move through that. Uh, so, and really most of the evidence-based models are based on single event types of things. So if you have an optimal life and you have a bad thing happen to you, those models will help people move through it and resolve it fairly quickly because the structure's already in their, op, their life to kind of move through it anyway. And these evidence-based models will really help you move through it quickly. So you have EMDR and ART and, you know, a lot of the, you know, so the, you know, the CBT stuff. If you think about CBT, to have CBT work, the client has to be at the top of the ladder. Mm. If they're in the middle of the ladder, they can't do CBT. Why? Because their, ner their nervous system won't work to let them do that. Um, so, you know, a lot of the interventions we use already assume that a person's at the top of the ladder. And if they haven't, if they're not living in an optimal environment, they're not at the top of the ladder. So when we're, when we start moving away from the single event into, um, chronic stress where, and, and people live in chronic stress environments at work, at home, in their community where their body never gets a chance to relax. And so their body never gets a chance to relax. And as, as their body's in this constant state of arousal or dysregulation, um, there are there are short and long term impacts on the body, and people, you know, if you're not aware of those, you miss see what's happening as either willful behavior or or you know a a, 
that somebody's doing this on purpose when it's basically just reactive behavior. And some of it is completely out of control of the person. Um, let me give you a silly example. You ready for a silly example? Oh, yeah. So when you move into a state of arousal, everything above the diaphragm becomes excited. Your breathing changes, your breath rate changes, and everybody kind of is familiar. Heart rate goes up, you know, and your muscles tinch, tension in, increases. But what people don't realize is there's hundreds of changes that occur that are biologically predictable. They're not bad behavior. They're not wrong. They're, there's nothing wrong with them. It's the way the body's designed to respond. And and when those happen, though, they, they make things a little difficult for somebody. So one of the ones uh, parents struggle with all the time is they get, they're upset, their child is upset, they're trying to correct the behavior, but the child's not hearing them. And, you know, I've heard that from hundreds of people, well, my, my kid doesn't listen. Well, your kid cannot listen because one of the first things that's affected when your body moves into arousal is the muscles of the middle ear constrict, which make it almost possible to process language. And you may hear what they're saying, but you cannot under, you know, you can't interpret it. You can't process it very well. And in fact, what we know is that as that happens for, for children, particularly to be able to hear the, the adult's voice needs to drop an octave or two to a much lower register. And the pacing needs to slow way down. In fact, when we're training parents to do this, we say you should have probably a half second pause between words. And of course, if you're an upset parent, you can't do that because you're not regulated well enough to do any kind of thing with your child. But the, the reality is your child can't hear you, not because they don't want to. It's not that they're choosing not to hear you, that they can't. And the more energy you put in trying to make them hear you, the more aroused they become, the less able they're gonna be able to hear you. And if we, if we bounce even the cortisol level a little bit in their body, we also begin to shut down the part of the brain that processes language internally. So you now have both an, an organic block to, to hearing and you have an, a block in the brain in processing language. Very predictable biological responses. So we're often seeing behavior as bad behavior when it's actually biologically correct behavior. And if you don't understand the biology, then you're not really going to understand or be compassionate about human beings. I love that. I think I'm going to let that sink in for a second uh, for our listeners. And this is something I've been trying to explain, uh, but it's very difficult to explain because a lot of us were taught a, a cultural narrative growing up and uh, lots of traditions in the family or traditions in society um, to, for instance, here's an easy one. Someone's acting out, you raise your voice, you command them to stand down, to stop what they're doing, to correct it. And you, if you have you ever worked with a, a child, you'll see them get stiff, uh, feel upset, they get more angry at you and parents are getting confused. Why are they angry at me? They're the ones acting out. They're the ones that are wrong. And it's confusing and then it leads to more disintegration in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, um, yes, we need to, if a child is acting out, they need some correction. 
the correction doesn't come from you screaming or yelling at them. It comes from boundaries and it comes from plans and it comes from mm -hmm. an action step that doesn't, that can be delivered in a way that's, um, compassionate, empathetic, but also, uh, respectful to the parent and the, in the situation or the safety of the child. So, um, yeah, I think, and it's also, you see this all over, even unfortunately in the therapy community where you will, I've heard this before, um, anyone who's had an addiction to drugs or alcohol, well, it's their fault. Uh, yeah. you know, they, they're morally corrupt or whatever you sort of, this old understanding, uh, doesn't understand the biological influences that led to them now having a scientific addiction to a substance. Yeah. Um, and we're, and we're, uh, we're judging them from a place of a well-regulated mind. Most, I'm not saying most, but I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a little stereotype. Uh, some of the therapists who love models that work on the upper part of the brain were raised in an environment that was decently regulated and therefore don't understand possibly what, how it is to be unregulated except for certain incidents in their life. Is that? Uh, my experience is a little different than that. Okay. So um, my experience has been that most of the people attracted to being in the mental health world have, um, they have their own history of dysregulation and toxic stress. Okay. And when you actually go in and look at and work with clinics because we do a lot of work with organizations around trauma-informed care, it's not unusual to find your therapists as dysregulated or more dysregulated than your clients. Um, so, you know, it's really hard for them and that's why they tend to over-focus on high levels of emotionality rather than, you know, high levels of emotionality or middle or lower, la lower ladder functions. Mm. And you know, that's what they think is good therapy is. And that's really problematic. It really hurts a lot of people. And it dis, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction in, you know, you can see it in the level of burnout in mental health field because they keep trying to address it when they, you, I'm going to make a comparison here. A parent cannot expect a child to outregulate them. And a lot of times why the reason a parent is upset is because they've lost control themselves. A lot of times therapists get upset with clients because the therapist isn't competent at regulating themselves. And so what they do, the, the way to protect yourself in that case is, you know, they're, they're not making progress. It can't be my fault because that would threaten me. Uh, it has to be their fault. So they're non-compliant. They're, you know, they're, they're resistant. They're not motivated. And those are all lies that therapists tell themselves so that they don't have to feel bad because they're inadequate for their job. Oh, I like that. Okay. I'm on board with that. I was just uh, making a, a little bit of a projection based on transference. So let's talk about not, we're still in the doctor therapy thing and why that's important to be trauma informed and understand this, but on the physiological level, learning to regulate yourself. Um, can you tell me just some of your favorite examples of why it's important in the medical field and the in the psycho in the psychology field about why it's important for people to be trauma informed and also understand themselves? There's two well, tiers there. You know, there's lots of it. Let me just let's talk about you know across the breadth of our society. Um, we expect children to go into school, sit there, be compliant, be acquiescent, and learn. However, 
if their physiology is in a state of arousal and we're not doing anything in the environment to create a calmer child, we actually aren't setting the stage for them to learn. And when you look at curriculum and you look at uh, um, you know, so many of the things that are out there, uh, one of the schools that I was talking with recently, it was, uh, they're, they're all involved in social intelligence, you know, the, the emotional intelligence. And they're saying, well, you know, this, they'll be self-aware, they can do these things, we're going to really work on that. And I said, You're, it's not going to work for you. Because in order for it to work, they have to be at the top of the ladder. And most of your teachers aren't spending hardly any time of the day at the top of the ladder. So until your teachers can be at the top of the ladder, you cannot expect the child to be. Same with parents. Until the parents can stay at the top of the ladder, no matter what's going on, they don't have any chance of getting the kid up there because no child is designed to outregulate an adult in the environment. Um, they're designed to build serve and return attached relationships where they co-regulate each other. But if the adult is not at the top of the ladder, they have nothing to offer the child in the way of regulation. So now let's move into the mental health world. If the therapist, the, the client is not going to outregulate the regulation ability of the therapist. And we have therapists that aren't regulated. And how do we know they're not regulated? Because they keep plunging their, their, their client back into drama over and over and over again, clearly disturbing, clearly unwiring the, the client, clearly not creating healing because they can't regulate themselves. You know, when, when, and they think they're being compassionate and kind. This client is overwhelmed and they hear this client's story and their heart goes out to them and, oh, I understand. You know, that must have been awful for you. And what they end up doing is focusing the person on more of the same rather than helping them kind of, okay, that bad thing happened. How do we help you move through it? That requires you to be regulated. Right. So for the therapists out there, it means that you're able to have empathy while also understanding where you where you are at and where your client is at in this relationship. So you're not overly emotionalizing or dramatizing the situation and you're compassionately holding a space. Yeah. And if you hold the space, that means we're regulated. And yes, there are certain stories that are going to move us more than others. Sure. However, it is our job to be uh, the safe space for them where they can, well, they deserve, but also they can expect mm -hmm. a response that's somewhat consistent and then a plan to not only help them in that session, but also a plan moving forward to help them move out of um, the cycle of, of certain symptoms, I guess we'll call them, or maladies that they're, they're currently going through because of a traumatic event or, like you were saying, because of chronic stress, toxic stress, chronic um, traumatic events. The, the way I put this to folks is the well-regulated therapist can sit and other people's darkness with them without becoming reactive. And by the therapist being able to sit, if I was a client and have it, and the therapist is able to sit in my darkness and stay calm, then I can learn to help. I can learn to be calm in my darkness. And it, but if my therapist gets all every time, you know, my story comes out, then, then I learn either to protect the therapist from my story or I realize, well, this story is so bad that even the therapist can't manage themselves. 
uh, I must really be ill, and and that's problematic. So I actually defined empathy not typically how we define empathy. In our, in our mental health world, we tend to think of empathy as being overly connected. If you want to think of that, we want to connect with their pain and their misery. And really, empathy is about understanding how human beings work and being tolerant for that. And that really does require people to have a significant knowledge on physiology because you don't know how people are working and why they're doing what they're doing until you know that. Okay. Yes, I think that is steering us a bit more toward the physiology discussion um, and maybe a little bit of sociological stuff. So I loved your earlier definition and your metaphor about the physiology. Um, and I also, I also think, interestingly enough, this physiological discussion we're having about trauma goes back to Scott Miller and Bruce Wampold's research about the percentage of the of the treatment effect of therapy has to do most of it has to do with the relationship mm -hmm. and that relationship has got to be ethical and balanced and all of these things we we work on in the basics of therapy and all about the client not about the therapist but also well regulated physiologically yep and and also you know a smaller amount is about the technique and a smaller amount is about the allegiance or uh, basically that the client is allowing themselves to trust the therapist in the process. Mm -hmm. And the process is so many things I could talk about there, but let's, I'll try to keep it short, which is like you said, being able to go into the darkness with somebody is like giving them a light on a way out. And even if I'm using my best techniques, EMDR certified, done all these trainings, I've done all the CBT trainings, I've done mindfulness stuff for 15 years, you know, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and stress reduction. Uh, it's It doesn't matter unless, unless I can show them this in a way that makes sense to them and then they take that mm -hmm. and they do something with it. And I always say to the client, what you think matters way more than what I think about any thought you're having, any, you know, if we do an imagery exercise, the images that you think and what you interpret that to mean means a lot more than what I think. Mm -hmm. I've got a theory, but I'm not you. And and teaching them to have that confidence and, and empowering them to, to say, uh, my story can be integrated. My my past can be understood and my my present can be something that I can I can, I guess, regulate or I can deal with it, I guess, is a better way of saying it. So any thoughts on that? Well, I think what, it, what we end up with is, you know, the, the, the need of the therapist. I, I'm going to make it really simple, is that you have to be living the life that you're inviting your client to follow. If you're not living a well-regulated, intentional, deliberate life, if you're constantly reactive and you're responding to everything with intense emotion, you aren't regulated enough to be a mental health worker. And I would have guessed there's a good number of them out there that shouldn't be um, because they haven't got their own stuff together well enough to be, they can't lead anybody into a life they aren't living, living themselves. So then, then you have the complications of this is the way we 
the way we misunderstand the way the nervous system and the brain works. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting that people tend to ignore, um, you know, and we ignore it to our peril for the client. But you have like George Kelly back in 1955, one of the original American cognitive psychologists, and he he established a principle that says what you what you focus people on, you get more of. And what we do in the mental health world, from the moment they have contact with us, they have to prove that they're sick in order to get be, be eligible for services. And then we diagnose them. And then we talk about the diagnosis that is sketchy at best anyway, and, and convince them that they have this thing. And we essentially keep focusing them on the same thing over and over again. And how do we expect them to create wellness out of that? It's, it's kind of like I, a lot of times when I'm out doing conversations with people, particularly on the East Coast. Um, I, I was in New York, so it was kind of handy um, not too long ago. And I said, so you guys are smart. You have a lot of capability. You, you know, you've been educated. You're, you control a lot of your thinking. So don't think of the Statue of Liberty. Do not think of the Statue of Liberty. I don't care what else you have to think about, but don't think about the Statue of Liberty. What are you all thinking about? Statue of Liberty. We essentially underserve clients because we keep focusing them on their deficits and their problems and you know the miseries and the losses and the griefs because the, that the therapist is getting some kind of indirect benefit from that or the therapist isn't mature enough or regulated well enough to move them past that into being in a well-regulated state. Oh, I love that. Okay, a couple quotes for you. Um, so Richard Rohr said, you can only bring someone where you've gone previously. I agree. Um, I also hear practice what you preach, old wise folktale language, I have no idea who said that. Um, a lot of Jung's followers in the Jung world says you have to do your inner work or you can't change anyone, let That's alone right. yourself. That's right. So, um, also, but that's actually go ahead. Something that kind of out of Aristotle. Oh yes, okay. said that. You know, I mean, we're not talking about this. Is not a new concept, right? Um, you have Socrates saying an unexamined life isn't worth living, right? I mean, you know, this has been around for a long time. Just people, you know, it's tough to live intentionally. It really is. Yes, um, it's something, you know. Well, we'll get into that. we'll get into that the New Year's resolution, and we make a plan. And I always tell my clients, I say, listen, you made a goal this week to do something. If you get it, if you do that goal, thirty to forty percent of the week, or what your intention was, that's success because we're human beings and we're living in a fluid environment, and we're just trying to start creating positive mm -hmm. patterns. So one of the things that I really learned when I was um, full-time clinician on the west side of Phoenix was about strength-based and focusing on what are people doing well in positive psychology. And I think that is a huge part that we have to uh, look at as therapists. Um, I heard Dr. Michael Yapko recently say, sure. what you focus on, you amplify. That's right. So um, I, I feel that while there's a definite need in EMDR type therapy to work through big traumas that are, you know, having us ruminate or 
focus on and we can't get those intrusive thoughts out of our head there's also the flip side of the of the coin which is how are we helping this person see all of their strengths um, the positive things in their life and furthermore same with you said the therapist needs to do their work and i was kind of going to go with that but i was going to talk about the client here first which is helping them understand themselves where they came through their story and what they and what part of understanding yourself is understanding that you can only see certain possibilities in your future. And, and especially if we're feeling upset or we have low self-esteem or something, we see almost no possibilities. So bringing those possibilities open and that's the th one of the therapist's jobs. So I, I've always said this, I have been in therapy for 15 years at least, on and off, uh, mostly on, with a number of different therapists on purpose because first of all it was the first thing was my immature self 15 years ago was saying well i just want to learn how to do therapy better you know that was my <laughs> stupid excuse and then i loved it and i was like okay well i learned a lot from this person and i really moved through some things so now i want to learn from this person and this person and this person and now um, I, and I'm open about it. All my clients, I say, listen, when they start, oh, I'm sorry, I, if I overwhelmed you with my story, that's a common first thing people say in their in their first session. I said, I, this, I love hearing your story. This is what I do. This is, I want to help you create your new story. I want to create or, or figure out how you want to work on your story. Um, so obviously, I'm not, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to like model myself as some model therapist, but I, I have really gotten upset when I've worked or met with therapists mm -hmm. who have told me um, either, I went to therapy once for a year and it was great. I've moved on, I've accomplished these goals and now I'm just a therapist. And that was 20 years ago. Or, or I don't need that. I'm a therapist. I think about this stuff all the time. That's a good excuse. And I'm thinking, no, no, no. You, we all have blind spots. Yep. We have blind spots and we have, um, I don't know, you know, I love ego state therapy. So I, I say ego states, we have unresolved issues. Even if we don't have a history of chronic trauma and stress, we have unresolved issues within ourselves and in our current life, we have different stressors. And if we're working on that, it's kind of like, okay, let's just say I go to a personal trainer at a gym, which I don't, but let's just pretend I did. <laughs> and this guy is just like, a, you know, he's like me, he's like a stick. He has no muscles and he's telling me, pick up those weights, do it, do it. And I say, well, how? And he goes, well, here's a YouTube video. Look at look at this guy lifting weights, and it's this you know muscle. I want my physical fitness dude or whatever, my personal trainer, to be strong and to be able to demonstrate yep. how to do the weights, you know. And so uh, it's the same thing. If a therapist isn't working on their mental health, and and this is no shame. Okay, listen, therapists who are listening to this, who might start feeling shame. Listen, everyone's going through something, anxiety, depression, stress, trauma, whatever, that we aren't saying you have to be, you know, overcoming everything or whatever sort of state that is. We're saying we have to be actively working on it. And if we do that, our therapy sessions are gonna be so much better. I remember taking a break from therapy once and I was like, oh my gosh, I am starting to suck. At therapy, <laughs> and I started listening to some podcasts. Uh, you know, at the time because I was out of money. And I don't know. I was good. There's a good excuse. I was out of money. I couldn't afford it or whatever BS I was telling myself. So, I, and then all of a sudden, I got back into therapy. And it's not like I was copying my therapist, but I was the idea because I was working through my own stuff. I could more easily align and empathize, and also empower and 
and and build a scaffold for the client to do their work mm -hmm. because I was engaged in my own. Sure. So that was a long-winded something. Was there a question in that? I don't even remember. I guess I was going to talk <laughs> more about um, I think you've covered quite a bit. Well, uh, you know, I tell me some more. I think one of the things, you know, if you're if you're if you're not actively in therapy, which I think is good for any therapist, then having a collection of friends that will hold you accountable is becomes incredibly important. The people that are going to be, you know, you're being an ass, knock it off, or, you know, I don't understand why you're saying that. And you know that because they care for you, they can confront you and, you know, you're more likely to kind of really pay attention. You know, I have, I have friends that do that for me. And, you know, sometimes it, Sometimes it doesn't feel very good because, uh, uh, you know, I, I recently, this is a good example, recently was talking to one of them and I was kind of explaining what I was doing on something. And he goes, you need to do something different than what you're doing. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, you're like at 30,000 feet in the plane and you're trying to explain things from there and you need to land the damn plane. <laughs> and he was, I mean, he was pretty blunt about it and he, you know, but I knew he, he cares about me. He's been my friend for 30 years. And I knew that that was, you know, it was come from a good heart. But he's, the real friends that I have will confront me and say, you know, I don't understand or explain that more to me. Or I think you're off the mark. Or I think that hasn't been thought out enough. And that, that is invaluable to us as therapists. If you don't have that from a therapist, then you ought to have that in, you know, make those connections so you have somebody that's going to hold you accountable. Earlier, you, you mentioned, I'm going to shift gears on you. Mm -hmm. Earlier, you mentioned the work of, of Bruce and, and uh, Scott, uh, you know, who, Scott, who's now the, you know, the director and president of this International Center for Clinical Excellence. Yes. Uh, and Bruce uh, Wapold, who's done tremendous amounts of really good work. When, when people, when I say this in conferences and I talk about this, this piece of it, you know, it all started with Michael uh, Lambert in 1993 with this looking at what, what generates good therapy. Half of what creates change in therapy, we have nothing to do with at all. It just occurs because of time goes by. And, I was afraid you were going to say that. Keep going. And, and then, but what we can control, the actual model is only at most, depending on which study you look at, about 2% of the overall influence of what how therapy goes. But what we've done in our society is we focused all of this energy on if we have a better model, we're going to get a better outcome. And the more energy we put in that better model, better outcome, misbelief, because it's a lie, the better model, better outcome is not, there's not really good evidence to support that. However, um, as we've moved in that direction, what we have done is seeing companies, insurance structures, financial structures, agencies put less and less value on therapeutic relationship, mm. which is the part that creates the most change because they're trying to be efficient and effective and they, they are looking for the, you know, something that's quick. Let's get them in, get them eight or nine sessions and get them out and have it everything be good. But the reality is it doesn't work that way. And so the structure of the entire system tends to keep people sick rather than help them heal. And that's a, a real problem. It's not just in, not just in mental health. Um, we have 
you know, we have kind of a mindset, well, if they quit bleeding, then they're, they're all well. But we don't talk about, you know, now that, you know, how do you recover from that wound and how do you go, you know, live a better life now that you've had this happen? Um, or how can you take the restrictions that you now are under because of that and use them to grow from? We don't have a lot of those discussions. And that's really problematic in, in the world of mental health. Um, so, you know, as we start looking at this, and so as long as we're talking about how effective models are, um, I'm going to go ahead and step all the way into it for you. Uh, you know, one of the things we realize when you start talking about trauma as a single event, we have lots of good models and they work very well. But when you move past the single event and into a life of toxic stress or repetitive events or a lot of adversity where nothing would really come to the level of being a single bad event, but there's just a lot of grief and loss and a lot of uh, overwhelm on a relatively constant basis, you're going to, you develop physiological responses, which puts you in the category of complex trauma or complex stress. And talk therapy generally doesn't work with that well. And part of the dynamic is, if you want to look, most talk therapies um, do, if you want to think of it in real simplistic terms, it, it asks you for content, for content, and then moves you into emotion. You know, mm -hmm. you know well, what did you, how did you feel about that? What did you think about that? Um, even, even though the models that are using tend to require people to be at the top of the ladder, but the moment, let's say that somebody had a serious accident, and because of it, um, let's say they're an athlete, and because of the accident, they sustain enough, enough injury that they can't be an athlete. So they lose a part of their identity, a part of their career, and, and that, you know, it's a pretty horrible thing to have happen to them. But when what happens is that the typical mental health thing is going to keep talking about, so the person says, well, I lost 90 or 90, 95% of all my friends uh, because they were all associated to that other world. And now, you know, so I was facing that and the therapist will focus on how it must have made them feel to lose all those friends thinking they're do doing good therapy. But the reality is what they're doing is moving the client down to the middle of the ladder mm -hmm. or to the bottom of the ladder. Every time we overly focus on intense negative emotion, we're moving them out of the top of the ladder into the, to somewhere lower on that ladder. And so now that's fine if you're dealing with something that's not really, you know, what we consider, you know, a, a, this kind of complex trauma. That's a single trauma, lots of aspects to it, but it's a single trauma. But when you're over here and these people spend most every day in the middle or lower ends of the ladder, you do not take them there again in therapy. So you stay away from intense emotions. You, you, when you, you don't ever let them just tell their story because their story is a well-practiced um, version of, of the story that excites all of those emotions. And everybody says, well, that's what you do in resolution therapy. Yes, in resolution therapy, you reactivate the memory, but you do not re-enliven the emotion. There's a big difference between doing that. I can have you talk about it. What you really need to do is you need to have them be at the top of the ladder and be able to talk about this memory without reigniting all the physiology that went with it. 
that's how you get resolution. But plunging them back into that lower and middle level of the ladder just tends to dysregulate them, and it lengthens out the time they have to be in therapy, and it is it, and it's wearing them out. And we have a lot of dropout that don't come back into therapy until the next crisis occurs. And so, and they think, man, there's something really wrong with me. But once you help them understand what's going on in their own body, I find probably the, the biggest response we get from people is just sheer anger at the therapists they've had before that did not let them know, this is not weird. This is not broken. This is not crazy. This is my body being overwhelmed and this is how a body that overwhelmed works. But most therapists haven't been trained in that. So yeah, that is not good. Um, and in grad school, we were not trained in no. that. And I first found out about that through two things were, uh, the mindfulness base cognitive, uh, mindful way through depression, which talks some about that. Of course, it was mostly focused on depression and not, uh, anxiety and post-traumatic stress, but they talk about the physiology. And then Dr. Dan Siegel talked a sure. lot about that in the interpersonal neurobiology saying that he felt if you could educate someone about their biological responses to stress and trauma and all these different things in their life, they're going to f understand themselves better. And if they understand themselves better, then they're going to find a way, like you said, whether it's through therapy or whether it's through friends or finding a like-minded yeah. group of people out of their malady. But the worst part about it is if you're in a s stressful, toxic situation, and then because of that, you're then labeled as this terrible person or this mentally ill or this sick individual, then your narrative is now screwed. And your narrative is something you repeat in your head every day. And I remember, last thing I'll say about this was in EMDR therapy, one of, you know, in advanced, well, actually in the beginning of EMDR, they said the first session, do not ask them to tell you their whole story about their trauma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. They can, and I even preface this with my clients, at least when I was doing it right, which is, I understand there's a traumatic incident about a car accident or sexual assault. I don't want to know the details of that. Not because I don't care, but because I don't want to bring up that story right now where we're trying to work on a platform of different phases to help um, their nervous system. Well, I, maybe I'll, this is a very short version of what I say, so let's not quote me here. But where I'm going to help you learn how to do all these different things and lead you through these phases to help you get prepared for a mm -hmm. session where we're actually going to work on those events and I've even done EMDR where somebody told me they had a sexual assault they didn't want to talk about it at all mm -hmm. but I would say when I was processing it is the image changing are your thoughts changing yes they're changing okay let's continue and then afterward maybe two or three sessions of that they said they started feeling better and better and better and then they told me um, I said well what's different now they said well it's in the past now mm -hmm. I don't feel it every time I take a shower anymore that I'm going to be assaulted because it's in the past. And that was that. I don't know how many, it wasn't even that many sessions I saw them. And then they said, I feel great and I'm ready to go do what I need to do with myself. So um, that was something that I had to unlearn from graduate school in my EMTR training. Mm -hmm. Because if you're dealing with complex trauma or, or multiple traumas, and or just life, which life can be traumatic in and of itself, even if you don't identify it as a trauma. Well, I think most agencies um, are set up to traumatize their therapists. Oh, yes. <laughs> we could talk about that, right? <laughs> um, yes, I have things to say about that. 
at my agency, I was working on trying to not traumatize my therapist. <laughs> so I recommended only seeing clients four days a week maximum and working on your self-care as a, an integral part of it and that I had to then give them a better split by a lot than I was given when I was a beginner therapist making yeah. making what somebody makes um, you know, as a part-time manager of a grocery store with a master's degree working 45 hours, well, 50 hours, whatever. So yes, uh, that's the whole craziness of the model of having to identify people and treat them as problems and then giving yeah. the therapist Mind if I give you kind of a, paperwork. Give a different <laughs> example of this. What right. we do in mental health is we, we convince them that whatever's going on is a part of their identity. Right. Rather than it's just a, it's something that they're doing, and it, you know, trying to explain that to somebody is really difficult sometimes. Let me just give you the give you a simple way to kind of explain this to people. Um, if if somebody offers, say you 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 have smoked and you've decided that it's not good for you anymore, and somebody offers you a cigarette and you say, um, "I'm trying to quit." That's that's really a lot of work. I mean, that's a lot. That's a behavior thing. But if somebody offers you a cigarette and you say, "I am not a smoker," now it's an identity. And when it's a part of your identity, it's much easier to maintain. It's not work to maintain it because it's who you are. It's how you see yourself. And what we have done, which is an underservice to human beings in our mental health world, is we have helped them develop an identity that is mental illness. And now it, they own it and they are it and they can't get away from it. That's a really, uh, that's a horrible thing to have done to human beings. And, and we need to really step away from kind of that, that mindset. People are doing often what's biologically correct responses. And they shouldn't be pathologized for that. And they need to get part of therapy for me is helping people identify and own an identity of ability, own an identity of possibility, own an identity that allows them to move forward. But what the constant focus, the way that most people are trained to do therapy, and you keep taking people back down in the ladder, back down the lower parts of the ladder, um, they can't do that, and you just crash them again and again. So you know it's kind of kind of a problematic structure, when we only have about two or three percent of schools that teach master's level therapists that require physiology and anatomy as part of the course. There's a lot of them that give it as an elective, but very few that actually say, you know, you must know this. And the reality is um, we have said, well, emotions and thinking and behavior are important. Not that's body stuff, but you don't have these without this. So it doesn't make any difference. I mean, you know, if you don't know what the, what's going on in the body, you are not prepared to do mental health work. I could not agree more. Um, yeah, the mind, I always say this. I mean, this is a very crude term. I'd probably get something thrown at me into science by a scientist, but your brain isn't just in your head. It's all over your body. It's your nervous system. It's, your nervous system and is And the relationships throughout. you have with other people. Right. And, and Oh, well, there. yes, even further, the relationship you have with other people. It's a two-way street or more, or more all over your body. And then you're constantly reacting with stimuli and, and people mm -hmm. are one of the most intense stimuli that you can interact with 
in this on this planet. So um, I want to get into some good news, but before I do that, I want to get in. I want to just make a judgment on part of our our old system that we're trying to change here. Uh, the Arizona Trauma Institute is trying to change it. Uh, that's why I created the Trauma Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids at Health for Life because I wanted to change the paradigm of how we understood people and mental health from a baseline. If we understand them from a baseline, we treat them completely different and we act differently. Mm -hmm. Whereas the system I was trained in at first is not about prevention, proactive, and strengths uh, of people. It's about it's a reactionary system. Yes. It's essentially the angry parent. Mm -hmm. saying, why aren't you behaving? Call the crisis team. Crisis team. Why don't you just calm down? They won't calm down. Put them in the hospital. The hospital. Well, you're going to calm down because we're shooting you full of Risperdal and you're also crazy. Right? And then, and then what? Well, then what? Now you've been hospitalized for mental illness? How shameful is that? So, yep. words on that? <laughs> so, most well-established systems in human services and education are trauma-creating systems, not trauma-relieving systems. I mean, you can, it doesn't matter. You have teachers and schools, and we know, you know, really, if you want a kid to optimally learn, you shouldn't be in a, they shouldn't be in a classroom of greater than 12 to 15 students. We don't care about that. We put 35 kids in a room, and we expect one teacher to be able to teach them and we don't teach, we, what we teach teachers and colleges to do is how to control and punish and discipline them. And if you have children that are coming in and they're, they live in a regular, regular, you know, kind of a regulated well environment, if they're a relatively optimal environment, they will be relatively compliant and acquiescent and they will follow direction. But you have children coming into, into school that are living in almost constant states of adversity or stress, they're physiologically not ready to learn. Not that they don't want to, they're just not physiologically ready. And if the teacher doesn't have the skills to calm them down and keep them calm, um, then what happens? Well, the, you know, the kid comes in and they are, you know, I think of this as a threshold, Larry, they're at threshold or a little above. And so because they're at threshold, their body is just perking full of all sorts of chemicals that make them you know, twitchy, they won't sit still, they're going to over talk because what children do to, to start to feel calm is they tend to want to engage in conversations with other people. Mm -hmm. They are not going to sit still. They're not going to be able to focus. And so what does the teacher do? Instead of seeing that this kid is aroused, they see this bad behavior. And instead of saying, you know, um, Billy, um, can you come here up here and help me with something or get the kid moving? or do something to help the whole, all the kids calm down, what they do is confront this kid and say, sit down, pay attention to your math or whatever it is, and they just ramp up the arousal. And then when the kid reacts to that, the kid gets into trouble. So, I mean, that's an example of how it happens in schools. So the school is not designed to be a trauma-responsive or trauma-sensitive system. It's a trauma-reinforcing system. Let's look at state agencies, child protective services are not. They're rescuing children from physical danger, but they re-traumatize them repetitively. And, you know, anybody that's, and it, it attracts a lot of really good hearted people. 
and their goal is to protect the liability of the state for the minor award that they have, and and they make recommendations that they don't really understand. You know, we get we have gotten referrals from you know CPS saying there's a four-year-old that needs attachment therapy. <laughs> we have a four-year-old that's in their third placement. They're removed from their parents at 18 months. So who are the, who do you want them to attach to? You know, for them, all adults in their life have been dangerous. Why would you say they need attachment therapy? You need to get them into a stable environment. You know, I mean, we don't, if you think foster care, we don't train foster parents to, to deal with traumatized children and recognize physiological arousal. What we've done is send them through Adlerian-based uh, parenting programs, which are great for the well-regulated. Because what they, all Adlerian parenting programs, you know, and it's, it's parent, you know, um, almost all the positive parenting things are based on Adlerian ideas that assume that you have a good, you have a good attachment with the child. Well, that's wrong with these kids. Why don't you teach them how to parent a child that doesn't have an attachment to you? We don't do that. Uh, you know, and it's just it, system after system after system fails to recognize arousal and to tailor what it does to, to calm that down. Now, if I was being particularly belligerent, I would say that we do that on purpose. Um, the legal system, you know, the education system, the mental health system, human services in general, tend to be paternalistic and demanding and you you know and they, they really aren't designed to be trauma sensitive but I don't think our society wants people to be trauma sensitive I don't think people want to pay attention to that certainly if I am selling products I don't want you to be regulated because then you would be self-reflective and you would evaluate what you need if you do you really need this I want you to make the impulse buy you know we have billions of dollars in credit well, why do we have that? Because we have a lot of people buying crap they don't need. Well, if I was really well-regulated, I wouldn't be doing that. Certainly the politicians don't want regulated people because most of them would not be in office. I don't care what party you are looking at. If they were, if people were really examining what folks are saying and then holding them accountable. So our whole society is designed to dysregulate people, but we don't like the negative consequences of it. So we, yeah, so it's basically tossing people from chaos to then the, the intervention is rigid. That's right. We go from chaos to rigidity. And one thing I was, Dan Siegel was saying this, I don't know what book was that he was going through all the DSM diagnoses and the thing he found in common was either a pattern of chaos in the diagnosis or a pattern of rigidity, which is a coping skill, you know, a, sure. a coping skill of people, but we're, we're looking at this at a societal level and um, well before you yeah. pass on the DSM the category a which is your gatekeeper to get a diagnosis right is if there's a lot of drugs available you got a big a because like 11 12 items for depression right but if you have something that really requires treatment and no drugs it's a small a so it's hard to get that diagnosis and then, but when you look past A to everything else, all the, all the symptoms they're saying are based on arousal. And so what we've done is say, being a normal human being that's in a state of arousal, you're sick, you're mm. crazy. And that's, 
you know, we have a lot better systems than the DSM or the ICD system, but nobody wants to use them because they actually help people regulate their body. And we, you know, we have a long history of this. Um, Pierre Genet, you know, in the 1880s is saying, if you can get a person's body relaxed, you, you, their symptoms will reduce. You have Herbert Benson in 68, uh, the Harvard researcher saying, if you can get people's body to relax, their symptoms will go away. You have Joseph Wolpe, 1958, you know, introduction of reciprocal inhibition, that if you can get a body truly relaxed, they will not experience anxiety, anger, or fear, because totally relaxed bodies don't experience those things. What if we had actually started designing our work with people to help them get into a relaxed body and stay in a relaxed body? We wouldn't have, we wouldn't be selling the mountains of drugs that we are. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, a lot of therapists would be doing a lot more brief therapy approaches. What we have found over the years of doing, of focusing on the body is that once we get somebody well-regulated, half the time they don't need any more therapy they are self-correcting faster than we could do therapy with them. I could not agree more. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to talk about some of your trainings, but it, it does remind me of there's been a, a significant popularity, although only in certain seems to be financial circles, of yoga and mindfulness meditation mm -hmm. that's been kind of resurging here and I actually was at a conference last fall where you ever heard of Sounds True organization, sure. Tammy? She was talking about their new project is to bring mindfulness meditation and yoga and things like this into low-income communities, communities with a lot of disruption, and give away free um, books and podcasts and resources and CDs and DVDs to help kids in those schools because uh, they had a, a speaker who was a 25 year old student from South Central Los Angeles and he is a huge into meditating and now is teaching meditation courses and uh, which is essentially regulating your body mindfulness based stress reduction is the medicalized version for the people out there that don't know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. and um, getting in touch in tune with your body's rhythm paying attention to it on purpose breathing essentially just learning to sit there which is not something we do much here in the West, uh, except, uh, so, you know, he was speaking and they were talking about the need for that because she was sort of saying like, this has changed all of our lives. Imagine if we could help, you know, all these people that it, it's not in vogue for that, that community, right? It's in vogue for certain communities. Um, but how do we reach people with these tools to learn to do that? and to have examples of that, right? This kid was an example. That's why he's such a great speaker is because he can go to 20 somethings and say like, oh my gosh, look what I was doing. He was in a lot of trouble and had problems mm -hmm. and you know, all this sort of stuff that came out of his neighborhood. And now look where I'm at. And not that he, you know, I wouldn't, he wasn't touting money or fame, but now look where I'm at. I'm teaching these classes. I feel good about myself. I'm happier. Uh, and all thanks to, you know, like as you said, he learned to meditate, learned to regulate his system, and then he was able to problem solve. And Imagine he could be that. intentional. Yeah. He could be intentional. He was able to problem solve. He was able to help his family. He was able to help his friends. And I think that is amazingly simple 
But yeah. then how do we, <laughs> how do we, how do we, uh, it's almost like we are almost having to help people unlearn terrible patterns that have been kind of uh, taught to them both directly and indirectly by their surroundings. And, and, and I really appreciate that people are trying to do this with children. However, biologically, children are designed to respond to the environment. I mean, that's just plain biology, human development. I don't care what, you know, which of the sciences. You, children are not designed to be independent of their environment. So the real, the real challenge with this is getting teachers to be good at this so that they can model it for their kids, getting parents to be aware and being self-regulating so that they can do it for the, you know, I mean, there's lots of ways it can be, you certainly can use yoga and you can use mindfulness, but there's lots of ways that are quick and relatively not very complex. Um, you know, a lot of just plain breathing things work mm -hmm. really well. Um, you want even one of the things that sound, um, what you mentioned sounds name, true, sounds true, yeah, is part of an initiative with the LinkedIn organization. Oh, okay, and they're trying to get this into corporate leadership, uh, even trying to, you know, trying to develop leaders that have, um, um, you know, this approach of you, you need to keep you regulated and you need to help your staff and workers be regulated which is what trauma-informed care really is. So, I mean, it's it, 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 there's a great deal more awareness of it in our society, but it has to start, it really has to st start at the top oh, right. and work its way down. And is that, and, and to get someone at the top requires finances and... Well, you know, yeah. it, you, know you can't, the, the parents, if the parents aren't doing it, the children aren't going to do that. Right. If, if the, the leaders, if the teacher isn't going to do it, the kids in the classroom aren't going to do it. Right. If your, you know, if your boss at, at the clinic where you work is, you know, intentionally puts stress on people, you know, a lot of demands, very low support, and actually blows their system up all the time, then you can't help but see your 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 employee react that way. So I mean, it really, you know, people mistakenly think, well, we, you know, this is. It has to start from up at the top. And that's where, you know, that's where you work on trying to get legislation passed. You try to get, you know, you, you know, I think what LinkedIn is doing, you know, is the largest business network out there and they're really pushing it. I mean, they have some incredibly well-developed education materials that they'll provide to anybody for free that, that wants to be able to kind of begin to do this. And, you know, the, you know they they are really kind of pushing this as a leadership principle, and so I mean we're going to see it more. You see it, you know. There's several medical schools now that give awards for achieving a focus away from pathology and onto social determinants of health. What are you doing to have your your doctors learn to focus on the social aspects of health? Um, you know, here in Mesa, AT still won an award for that. And so, I mean, it's, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the move, which is great. Where I started 20 years, 20, doing this 22, 22 years ago, nobody was listening to this at all and nobody wanted to. So we've gone a long way, but the, 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 the way our society is operating right now, it's becoming clearer and clearer that it's more necessary than it was 20 years ago. So that's uh, 
So, um, I don't know, where, what's our time frame? Are we getting pretty close? Getting close. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about talking about some more positive things, which okay. would be your offerings at the Arizona Trauma Institute are international. Yes. We were discussing this before we started taping, and I was surprised to hear, is this okay if I talk about the? Sure. I was surprised to hear how many international people were buying your educational programs as opposed to United States citizens. And we had a good laugh about that. But anyway, so this is, uh, you know, we're trying to spread the message, spread the information, spread the science so that people can understand themselves. And this is everything you're, people could see your mission statement online at the Arizona Trauma Institute website. But can you tell us about some of the stuff you're offering um, both uh, online and in-person um, classes? Sure. We, well, right now with the COVID, we're doing everything through webinar, but yeah. uh, generally we offer, uh, in a typical month, we probably have 15, 18 days of actual training here at our site. And those are usually focused on clinical trainings, um, you know, that are designed to help therapists be able to navigate working with traumatized clients and generally, most of our trainings are really geared to working with people that have the more complex trauma. Um, you know, we're not we're not really so concerned about the person that has a single event. Most of those are going to get well in conventional settings fairly quickly. Uh, but we, we most of our focus is on that. We provide a tremendous amount of free resources to different communities. Um, we have currently we have several, um, we call them coaching sessions where people can just join, get interaction with our, with our team members and, and, uh, get answers to questions and, you know, get some direction on what they can do. They don't have to pay for that. Um, we have, we have one run, running right now on self-regulation. We have one running on, um, you know, capturing a spiritual focus in your daily life. We have one about, um, um, sobriety when you can't attend, um, you know, AA, AA or, yeah. you know, meetings, how do you, you know, in this day and age when you, it's hard to get someplace, how do you do that? And then we have the one on, uh, right now we have one parenting through the pandemic, oh. which is to support parents in the process of that. We're going to be starting one in a, in three or four weeks on, um, dealing with the effects of long-term traumas, uh, and inflammation and how that leads to chronic health and, you know, making suggestions to people, how they can relax their body, you know, how to take in the levels of inflammation down, you know, how to talk to professionals about this. Um, and so these are, the, these are the kinds of things that we do community-based, but we, we do a lot of clinical training and we do it both in both live and we do it as a live webinar. And we also have a lot of material that is on our online platform. And so it's been this year, it was the first time we've exceeded more people online outside the United States than we actually meet with here. So we train generally between eight to 10,000 people a year. Um, and now we have um, 16,000 online outside of the country going through your platforms and your trainings. Yeah. And I was also impressed because you had the gamut of, 
you know, some of the some of the in-person stuff and the really involved stuff is a bit a uh, bit more expensive, but still relatively mm-hmm. affordable for a clinician. Yeah, we keep it all. Um, we we have uh, a three-day advanced clinical training, and I think it's under three hundred dollars. That's amazing because uh, if you've been to trainings before out there for three days, you're usually spending six to eight hundred for the clinician. So I, I think that is a great value. Also, uh, also a very affordable online clinical mm-hmm. trainings, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you, you said you mentioned free stuff for the community, some of the community engagement. Right. Well, actually. Uh, almost free. On our online right. platform, we had a lot of people from Central Central uh, America and South America that were looking for a good basic training on trauma. And we do one called the Certified Trauma Support Specialist. Yes. It's a 12-hour training, and it's for anybody in whatever job you have how to, how to use trauma. And what we did is we had it translated into Spanish. And it's a very good translation. And what we did is we put that on our our international platform at no charge. Oh, and wow. so it's we we have at any one month we probably have two hundred people cycle through that course. And um, and they're from all over the place. I got a call the other day from a gal in, in Uruguay that had some questions about um, you know, how do I get some more information on such and such? And it was kind of interesting because I was having some difficulty kind of her English isn't as, is better than my Spanish. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, so it it was, it was a challenge, but we have, we have people from all over, you know, we get, um, I think, I think we have, uh, when I looked last time, I think we have something close to 500 learners in Mexico alone. And so, you know, I, we've, we've built these really good relationships with people. Um, we have somebody in Spain that is always promoting our stuff. Uh, we have, um, you know, like I talked about earlier, one of the companies that provides education material for electronic medical records has contracted us to they want some of our trainings for their platform and they do work in England and Europe and we're just negotiating on one in Dubai so but you know it's um, we don't have any materials in a lot of different languages they're doing this in English and you know one of the one of the people that I've gotten to know over the last several years is a professor in Saudi Arabia and and we were the other day we were talking and he said, I'd really like to take the CTSS, which is your basic course, and convert it into Arabic. Oh, wow. And so we're sending all the stuff to him for him to convert it to Arabic. And once it's converted to Arabic, we will also put it on our platform at no charge. So anybody that's... Because we have, we have uh, something like 80 students that are in Iran. We have... Of course, they speak Farsi, not right. Arabic, but... but uh, Eventually, we're going to have some of the basic trainings translated in multiple languages. Oh, that's great. And then, wonder, that's wonderful. Because our, our goal is to get this information into people's hands. And unfortunately, people in the United States are not that interested in it because, you know, the, the systems here are not designed to support the, the biology piece. Um, it really is designed to support pharmaceutical industries. 
And when you start looking at that, when you look at third world countries that don't have that infrastructure, they just want to know what works. So it's, we're finding that, that we may not be able to create a lot of change here, but give us another 10 years and somebody will hear us speak. <laughs> yes, and I'm, I'm glad uh, that you have not quit and you've grown immensely in your trainings online and in person. I want to thank you for letting me uh, come on your video show and also for being on my podcast. So we're, we're dual purposing this. Yes, that's right. And I appreciate uh, all the work you've done. And uh, you probably hear that all the time, but thank you so much for doing it because it's, its impacts are far and wide larger than we can see. So, uh, and, and I appreciate that. And I, I, I always am thankful that people are glad to get it. Um, as a, just kind of a final caveat, one of the things we know about complex trauma is it affects intergenerationally by actually mm -hmm. manipulating the genetic material. And so gene expression is affected by stress in the body. Not being able to get this handled in the next few years, what is the legacy we're handing down to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren? And to me, that is one of the primary drivers. We have got to stem this avalanche of stress in the lives of human beings. I agree 100%. Thank you for that. I think yeah. that's a good send off. All right. Thank you, Dr. Rowe. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Kraus, Licensed Professional Counselor. If you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with people you know. If you think the material on this podcast could help somebody or somebody in your community, please share it. I would surely appreciate it. Until next time on the Intentional Clinician, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. Now, if you are looking for an Emdria consultant which is the EMDR International Association. I am now an EMDRIA consultant in training and can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become EMDRIA certified. I am still working on getting started on my groups, but it looks like they're going to be on Thursdays and Fridays. You can find out more details on the website, healthforlifegr.com, or check out counselingsupervisorgr.com, and you can always email me. If you are looking to support counselors in your area, please join a professional organization. If you are in Michigan, the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is working to increase the availability of quality mental health services statewide. Check them out on Google. I also have a link in the show notes. If you're in Arizona, the Arizona Counselor Association, I have been a member of them for years. Please join them or just some other organization with a decent vision and mission. And now for the disclaimer. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Kraus and his guest, and while these are based upon literature they have read and their experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on this or any other subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention line at 1-800-273-8255. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. 
If you need an appointment and you are in the state of Michigan right now, the clinicians at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids are taking new clients online as we are now still on quarantine. You can find out more at healthforlifegr.com or call 616-200-4433 during weekdays, business hours, and you will get answers. Uh, Again, check out our website for more information. We publish blogs all the time, and we're just trying to help out the community. And I'll leave you with a new song that, well, it's actually an old song, but I recently released an album with my brother called Motel about us growing up in a motel, which is a true story. Although the songs are fictional, they do have true elements. So this is a new song, and you can find out details for that in the show notes. Please enjoy. Tell 